I will email you a bunch of parts. You're going to play a guy who is a bad puppeteer. That's one role. No, so good. You sat down and thought, who do I know that could be a shitty puppeteer? No, we came up with that after we passed Ben. I told them I would be I could be I could be clumsy and awkward and Yep, and then we're like, yep, he's gonna be it. Yep. So that way you can you can cover two Dickens characters I'm just visualizing like a shitty Edgar Bergen ventriloquist (laughs) of like Ben with a Ben doll on his lap. Come see this. Come gather all your poets, all your storytelling freaks. Thrumming your golden esophagi, spilling floral frilly speech. You are the chosen noisemakers, the rabble that won't sleep. The ugly little secrets walking proudly down the street. Each story holds a thousand seeds, a proverbial pomegranate. Possibilities, a not so silent planet. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the not so <laughs> a speculative podcast. <laughs> and uh, we are here with our our special guest tonight. Michael Merriam. That's right. He has assented to this with his name and his voice and everything. Oh, God. <laughs> and my co-host... Ben Sandell. Also correct. Good. So, <laughs> We're off to a good start. <laughs> we know who we are. So, uh, first of all, uh, uh, in going with the fact that I am... Perfectly updating these on the update schedule I have in my head. This is going up shortly before the 2017 Minnesota Fringe Festival. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's, yeah. So <laughs> And, uh, but diving into our book discussion here, uh, Michael Merriam's recommendation tonight was To Reign in Hell by Stephen... Bruce. Bruce? Mm-hmm. Stephen Bruce. And, uh, okay, so there are two possibilities. Okay. One is that you and I have very similar tastes. The other is that you are very good at evaluating what my tastes are. Both! Because <laughs> I've seen your friend shows. <laughs> but I, uh, yes, I, 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 but of the many books I've read for this podcast... Two vie for the top position. One is Lord of Light and the other is this one. I love them both so freaking much. <laughs> I picked Terrain in Hell, not, not just because it's one of my favorite books, but because yeah. it is kind of the spiritual descendant of Lord of Light. Like, Yeah, I, I have that Stephen Bruce is, is, <laughs> is one of the bastard children of Roger Zelazny in the right, right. world. Um, and so that was a big part of why I picked it. And I thought... Philip's gonna like this book too. I did. So I, uh, uh, the basic premise is it is a uh, 
one of those war and hell, fall of Satan type stories, uh, but just really compellingly told lots of very interesting and unusual sort of detailed world building with it. Uh, uh, on one level, it really is more of an order versus chaos thing than it is a good versus evil mm -hmm. thing. That it, it is the this series of consciousness is arising from this kind of primordial madness. Right. That... Uh, and uh, trying to build structure in that. And uh, <clears throat> ultimately, these different personalities emerge, and uh, one being Yahweh, who incidentally was the first, comes up with this plan to build a barrier that will protect them all from the waves of chaos that wipe them out, and, uh, but it will have some cost of life. Mm -hmm. And Satan's response is, well we should all be able to weigh whether or not that is a cost we want to pay, even if, in the grand scheme of things, that balances out, people should be able to make that choice for themselves. And uh, it, it ends up being this sort of grand freedom versus security mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah that's really exactly <laughs> kind of what it comes down to. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Satan takes the position of, of free will and self-decision, and, mm. and Yahweh is trying to encourage him during the plan, mm -hmm. to any angels who don't go with the plan to get them to take their part in this, no matter what he has to do. And he's like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, again, I mean, it's a, it's one of those very well done moral dilemmas where, well, they both have a point. <laughs> but the... Um, so one of the main mechanisms of this novel is there's this one of the many angelic beings is named Abdiel, who is a manipulator who's playing one side against the other and lying to them and he's the Iago of the piece. Yeah, and the and I I definitely had the sense for maybe the first third of the novel where I was really kind of frustrated with it, mm -hmm. where I was like, this is an interesting enough conflict that I kind of hate the fact that there's it's doing this sort of tropey if these people were in a room together they'd right, understand. they would understand right and but the thing that bought it back for me is eventually they finally do end up in a room together and they say, and they talk it out and they realize oh there's this third party that's been playing us against each other <laughs> now we understand but now that we understand we're still we're still at loggers <laughs> and we're still going to fight yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that was a beautiful moment mm -hmm. for me. Was the yeah note. <laughs> because there was no easy resolution once once they had had that conversation. A lesser author would have had an easy resolution at that mm. point, but in this case, because of what we're doing and because it's not a lesser author, it's mm. like okay, yeah, I see what happened here. I understand. We we know our armies are still going to have to meet down by the lake. Right. You know. Mm. Um, is there a lot of humor in this book? Yes. Yes. It's very funny in places. Yes. Well, because who has, who is good at? Re I don't like reading out loud, but who has to read this first sentence? I think I think Michael good. does. I think <laughs> this is a good first sentence. That made me go, oh, this book has humor in it. So am I reading like the first sentence? Yep. Here? Okay. Snow, tenderly caught by eddying breezes, swirled and spun in and out of bright, lustrous shapes that gleamed against the emerald blossom black, black drape of sky, and sparked there for a moment hanging before settling gently on the soft green tuft plains 
with all the sickly sweetness of an overwritten sentence. So I read that, and as I was reading it, I was like, man, this sentence feels overwritten. And that's and exactly then, what he's going it says, Overwritten sentence, and I was like, okay, so there's some, uh, there's some self awareness here. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering yeah. if the rest of the book has that kind of self-awareness. A it lot does. of it's very okay. funny. But yeah. Like, there's, I mean, one of the angelic beings who is a shapeshifter ends up in the form of a dog for mm -hmm. most of the, and there are sort of little nods of he's talking to another character and the character idly throws a stick and he has to, like, resist <laughs> the urge to chase him. <laughs> I mean, there's... That's like that's almost like good omens level humor. Yeah, it, yeah. A lot of it's very good omensy, I'd say, in terms of playing with the sort of angelic, and and um, yeah. It, it, one of the things I love about this so much, so I'm uh, fascinated with the whole problem of writing beings like angels and demons. I've <laughs> struggled with it a lot in my own writing. I'm really fascinated to see what other writers do, and it's. Uh, but the challenge is they have to be, have sort of recognizably human motives, mm -hmm. but also be something other than human. Mm. And wow, this book does a great job <laughs> with that. Yes. The, in, in, and in a sense, a lot of the process of this book is the process of these beings developing human motives that in the beginning they are kind of formless and as time goes on they develop mm -hmm. it's it's really fascinating and <laughs> and and i also uh yeah yeah so you liked it i liked it a lot <laughs> okay good. well that makes me happy to hear <laughs> it sounds intriguing the book is called terrain in hell uh philip likes it but don't take his word for it <laughs> Here is a bunch of children who will now say what they thought of this book. And if anybody didn't know what I was talking about, I was referencing Reading Rainbow. <laughs> For anybody listening to this, what was happening right there is Philip was just staring at me. <laughs> I, I, I won't lie, I'm tempted to interject a longer silence <laughs> than actually existed. Uh, yeah, but but it does have the. It was it was just a deeply fascinating book for a lot of reasons. And, and also, one of the things that struck me is uh, Abdiel, the manipulator. He does mm -hmm. such a great job manipulating people, not because he's so... Well, he is called the manipulator. Not in the book. <laughs> <laughs> you, said, you said his name, the manipulator, as if that was part of his name. <laughs> oh. But the, the reason he's so good at it is not that he's actually good at it. It's that the people surrounding him really have no concept of what deceit is. No, they don't. They, they have no <laughs> idea. They take everything, at least yeah. early in the book, yeah. everybody takes everything very much at face value. Mm -hmm. Except for this one character. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, and there's a parallel with Yahweh as he uh, comes forth and starts making these sort of grandiose assertions of, I was the first, I will be the last, everything comes from me, mm -hmm. everything. Everyone's like, oh, all right. I mean, why would he lie about that? <laughs> but and I, I'm also very deeply into the sort of uh, apocryphal Judeo-Christian mythology, very much as well. And wow, this book 
plums into that <laughs> in terms of all the sort of variety of angelic and demonic beings. And I think just about everyone I could think of shows up in the book in some form or another. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was like, wow, he just, he, he like, he went for all of them, didn't he? He really kind of did. Um, but I, I, one of the things about this book too, for me, now, you read it. Mm. Now, imagine that you are me <laughs> in the 1980s living in rural America in the mm -hmm. buckle of the Bible Belt trying to find one other person I can hand this book to <laughs> who will enjoy this and not be horribly offended. Well, is right. it um, is it anti-Christian? No, I would not call it anti-Christian. But if, if, you, if you've grown up with mm -hmm. the very deeply conservative evangelical Christianity, you are going to be offended by it, I think. And I, and I would, I, I actually would dive on that I I'm a Christian, I love the book very mm -hmm. much, and I would say that its basic premise is anti-Christian in <laughs> terms yeah. of the, the, the being who presents himself as the divine, as, the divine. Mm -hmm. uh, as God, essentially, mm -hmm. is very clearly not... Is this full of shit? Yeah, he's yeah. not omniscient, omnipotent... Or omnibenevolent. Mm -hmm. so, he's just, he just basically... He's, he's just, playing he, the con game well, trying to get something yeah, done. He's, he's Donald Trump. So he's saying <laughs> well, something very say confidently and everybody is like, it, oh, all right, he, it, must, it, <laughs> he must be talking the truth. In, in fairness, he is saying false things in hopes of achieving a great good for everyone, which right. is the uh, essentially to save everyone from a horrible death. Mm. But the... And again, Satan's the one who says that doesn't justify it. You right. still have to, you know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, again, it, it is a legitimately morally complex mm -hmm. there, There's that <laughs> scene near the end where after the two of them have talked, mm -hmm. and, and Satan is like, I have made, every decision I have made up to this point has been wrong. Yeah. But, you know, I have made all these decisions in truth and, right. and in believing what I believe. And mm -hmm. what you're doing is a lie. Yeah. And I can't go. I can't go that route. Yeah. <laughs> so Satan ultimately is the, takes the moral high ground. Yeah, and I, again, it definitely follows the. I mean, they reference Paradise Lost mm -hmm. several times, and it's an obvious. You probably can't write a book like this without referencing without it in some way. Right. <laughs> but uh, in terms of a sympathetic view of the devil, in terms of. Uh, yeah, it's hard not it's hard not to be on the devil's side and you can't condemn the being who chooses to call himself God right. entirely either. No, because he's, he's just trying to protect everybody. Yeah. And this is the way he sees is the best way to do it. It is the liberty secure. It's it's so mm -hmm. and again, it's uh it is not explicitly framed in the book as a political question, mm -hmm. but it's also hard not to read it as a human living in the world. And see it as a deeply political question mm -hmm. of the, if you could protect everyone by lying to them and robbing them of choice. Is it right to do that? Yeah. <laughs> huh. Hmm? 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 Well, that is a good question. Mm -hmm. My instinct is to, say, is to say no, which I guess aligns me with the devil. That would put, that would put <laughs> the camp. I would, uh, and again, mm -hmm. I'm very, uh, yeah, I'm, very in Satan's camp, but uh, 
Another thing that you could just do use as a soundbite when you're running for president. I'm very into Satan's camp. Who knows? Maybe by that point, Satan will be really, you know, popular. But yeah, and I do think it does. Uh, but even that is framed, I think, logically within Christian theology mm-hmm. of the. Uh, again, Christian theology is, I will defend, is a very complex thing with many layers and many, uh, uh, but there is definitely a very authoritarian mm-hmm. reading of it, uh, of uh, um, this sort of paternalistic God figure that wants to protect everyone by robbing them of their ability to choose. That uh, And that is very much the reading this book takes. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> How does this book handle the idea of free will? Because doesn't it t- doesn't technically that character also float the idea that people have the ability to choose, and that's what makes it? Well, it's a it, it's hard to frame in terms of this book because humans only emerge at the very end. Okay. So uh, this is mostly angelic beings striving against each other, mm-hmm. and there, I mean, the question of free will is sort of not a question because they all have it. I mean, they can all make their own choices. Mm. The question is how much knowledge should they have in making those? Should they be lied to and deceived Mm -hmm. even if it's in their best interests? Or should they be given all the knowledge even if they may use it to kill themselves and others? Which again, uh, applies to humans, strangely. (laughs) Kind of. No? I don't know. I don't necessarily know. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you could make the argument that... It is the authoritarian <sighs> argument. It is the argument that uh, uh, people can't be trusted to make good decisions, so they should be lied to. That is the authoritarian argument, yes? It's not the Ugh. democratic argument. So if you're in a democracy, your your goal is to make sure that everybody has as much knowledge as possible, or at least theoretically... Mm-hmm. That should be your goal. But yeah, in a, in a government with a dictatorship, then yes, you're, you're better off giving them as little knowledge as possible. In, but that's, but then that puts, the, puts them totally at the uh, whim of the leader. Mm-hmm. So it just, just yeah. depends on how good the leader is in that case. And I mean, this is fascinating stuff for me too. Uh, I love this as a fantasy novel because I uh, do not believe this is the actual uh, moral universe in which I live. Uh, in it is the moral human universe in which I live. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it's the morality which governs the universe. I'm getting religious, so we're down yeah, to. I've never seen you get religious before, even though I know you are. <laughs> we're down but to. Here we go. We're Come down on. to thirty-three <laughs> listeners, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the, uh, anybody who ever, who uh, who has been listening. Philip is a Christian, <laughs> and that may surprise you. But the, uh, but I, uh, it, it, it's a thing. I remember getting into this conversation about uh, the Hellblazer universe because mm-hmm. I love Hellblazer. I love John Constantine. I love the whole, uh, mm-hmm. the idea that there's this one drunk dick who tries to fuck over the devil and God, and like it's such a compelling story. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, it was someone asking me, oh, how can you reconcile that? And I'm saying. 
in the context of the Hellblazer universe, right. that is moral action. Mm-hmm. The, like Because he lives in a universe with a malevolent god. Mm-hmm. So it makes complete sense right. that he would be... His mocking and trying to undermine that god is heroic, right. in fact. <laughs> but, which is exactly yeah. how I feel about this book of... Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that can be done to undermine the being who presents himself as God in this book is a heroic act. Right. I don't necessarily think that's the universe I live in. Right. But wow, that's a great story. Mm-hmm. And morally, I am 100% on board with it. Right. <laughs> right. And that's the ability to, you know, compartmentalize reality from fantasy. Right. <laughs> it's almost as if we're talking about, um, what's the word? Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> On the uh, <laughs> speculative, what's the word? Fiction podcast. <laughs> but that's but, but what you're saying is, and that's an interesting thing, is what you're saying is, is that okay? So we're gonna get more controversial here. <laughs> what you're saying is okay. I I'm okay with this book because this book book is fictu- fictionalizing, <laughs> and in the context of this fiction, I like it. It's fictional fictionalizing. <laughs> A, an, another book <laughs> that is nonfiction. That's what you're saying. What? Whereas the hell are we talking about? <laughs> whereas, did I not make any sense there? You lost me at the comparison to a fictional nonfictional book. Well, <laughs> but what, what, what you're saying is, is that. Like, Constantine is mm-hmm. fighting a, a malevolent god right. in the fictional universe that he exists. Yeah. And therefore, it doesn't offend you mm-hmm. because you don't believe that the, that fictional universe represents the non-fiction universe right. that is you. the I Bible. Yes, thank you. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's all I was saying. <laughs> I have no more to add to that. I just think it's, I think it's fascinating because... Yeah. Now, you, so you're comparing a nonfiction, which some people think is nonfiction, and, uh, and other people think is also fiction. So you're basically looking at you're basically if you take the approach of that yeah. they're both fiction, then you are <laughs> then you are picking one fiction over the other. So, so one of my favorite passages in uh, any books ever it is uh, Adventures of Huck Finn, which I am so glad that I read on my own before I had to study it in school because I would have hated it mm-hmm. <laughs> the way that it was taught to me. But when I read it on my own, I loved it. And the, uh, But there's a fantastic passage in which uh, um, Huck and Jim are separated and Huck sits down to write a letter. I'm guessing you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the uh, Where he says, uh, he writes a letter to... You know, just saying, uh, you know, Jim is here. You should come. You should imprison and enslave him again. That's the right thing to do. And he sits there looking at this letter and saying, uh, you know, I know the moral thing is for me to send this letter and send him back to slavery. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and if I don't send it, I'll go to hell. And then he, st- he debates and finally he just tears up the letter and says, fine, I'll go to hell. Yep. <laughs> and it's such like a beautiful bet because... You know, his sense of morality, mm-hmm. which is actually more moral, yeah. <laughs> it's the, that it is better for him to go to hell and for Jim to be free than for him to send 
Jim to slavery and go to heaven. Right. I mean, it's but it's a question of weighing what morality even is, as opposed to a consequentialist like you know, morality is whatever ultimately spiritually benefits me. As opposed, and that's interesting. <laughs> well, that's interesting. <laughs> Um, that's interesting because isn't like Mark Twain is a isn't he famously atheist? Uh, I think he in is, my, but I well, could be wrong about that. Here's in my opinion, he was atheist. He did not explicitly identify that way, but my impression from especially a lot of his later writing mm-hmm. yeah. is that uh, he was and just sort of had to couch it in language that was acceptable. Well, what's fascinating is that, if you, let's just say for the sake of argument, he's atheist. Mm. And I think that the evidence shows that he probably leans, at least he leans that way. Mm. Um, but as an atheist, he is able to explore the moral conundrum here, I think, in a deeper way than mm. somebody who's, who is strongly Christian could, <clears throat> because they wouldn't... Somebody who's strongly Christian... <clears throat> wouldn't jump to that same conclusion. Oh, but I would say that there's a... And here, okay. I would say that there's (laughs) definitely... (laughs) I'm being so... Oh, I'm being very Jerry Lewis right now. (laughs) I I would say that there is definitely... um, One of the facts that I think is overlooked in much of our history is uh, that the abolitionist movement was a Christian movement. It was, uh, uh, for the most part, at the time in the 19th century, it was Christians coming together and saying this is absolutely immoral by any measure of morality that we have existing to uh-huh. us. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, there were also absolutely Christians who were appealing to biblical passages saying slavery is right, and that is what the Bible <laughs> tells us. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, I, I'm resistant to the idea that a Christian could not come to that conclusion. I, I don't think that, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's too much of a broad It, But it's fascinating to me that that a, a more or less atheist can, um, can kind of grapple with these moral mm-hmm. conundrums in a way that, to, to me, then it, well, let's talk about something more modern. Yeah. Your favorite show of all time, mm-hmm. Angel. Yes, which, <laughs> is, which could be uh, described as an atheist manifesto. Almost, oh, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it grapples an existentialist it, manifesto. Yeah, I would it, say. And it grapples with moral conundrum and religious conundrum mm-hmm. in a way I think that is really deep. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's coming from somebody who is just not religious, who is, an, who is yeah, a total yeah. atheist, and that's really grappling with these questions mm-hmm. in a way that, uh, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just that kind of, I don't know if, mm-hmm. I wouldn't call it a um, paradox, but it sort of is. It's just somebody oh, who's, not at all. And also, I, I want to be clear, I have no illusion that morality is something that belongs to people of a theistic mindset. I mean, like... Atheists throughout history have grappled with morality, as have Christians and Romans, and you but know, I, that, I don't think it's a unique. Like, <laughs> there's a certain, certain segment of people who who make the claim that atheists don't have a grasp of morality, yeah. and that therefore they should not be. Tra- I mean, that w- w- yeah, like well, those people like, are dumbasses. But there was like a survey. There was like a survey of Americans. I was like, uh, mm-hmm. like. 
like 10 or 15 years ago that mm-hmm. where they were Americans felt like atheists above all else above any other group was the most untrustworthy group because how yeah. could they have morals without the Bible? But then yeah. you're looking at these situations <laughs> where you see the, these atheist, atheistic thinkers grappling with morals in a way mm-hmm. that is rivaling, rivaling the, uh, the Christian thinkers. Well, yeah, and I've, I've seen a lot of those statistics too that I, I also find trouble of the I can't remember what the exact ranking is, but I remember in terms of would you elect a blank president and people would accept women and blacks and everything, and atheists were near the bottom <laughs> in terms of like electing an atheist president. People were like, nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah. nope. And I, uh, I'm mystified by that because I'm also, uh, uh, I mean, I'm a huge believer in separation of church and state and the the notion that and for me as a christian i am a particular believer in the notion that uh religion should have nothing to do with politics because i think uh it reflects badly on religion when we do that <laughs> and that's one of i i am uh, i'm i'm rereading uh, the screw tape letters now yeah. and one of uh, i love them deeply and one yeah. of screw tapes that, advice to Wormwood is get, make your patient uh, turn his religion into a political motive yeah. so mm-hmm. that the politics become yeah. more important than the religion. So the, the religion basically mm-hmm. becomes a means to the end, which is the political motive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ways that this demon is giving advice for the, uh, for the Christian to lo- essentially lose their humanity, lose their uh, yeah. soul. And and Twain makes a similar argument, I think, in Connecticut Yankee, where he says all the best things he ever wrote, because <laughs> uh, it's a great book. But he talks. Uh, I, I think he refers to organized religion as a political machine, mm-hmm. specifically as this is the only reason why you would organize belief in this way is to influence political policy, like yeah. in terms of. Faith and belief and salvation and redemption, those are all noble things. But the only reason you would organize it within this structure is to influence political reality. And that's troubling. <laughs> Very troubling. And then you have... Um, well, yeah, I won't get into modern politics. But, you know, it, 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 it definitely leads Because, to, God forbid, well, you the know, last three people listening to this podcast... <laughs> Well, you, you have that. You, you've been having talking. You've been having um, uh, people analyze this. The evangelicals voting for Trump, right. and Trump behaves in a way that does not is not consistent. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but he's anti-abortion. Right, and there you go. Yeah. And it's just that's the that's the be all end all. And apparently, that yeah. is the last the last true thing of. Christianity is no, no. I have seen it myself. My priest has told me on multiple occasions: do not vote for a uh, pro-choice candidate. Uh, they are not shy about it. <laughs> 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 you know, it has been like it's you know, it's interesting. But it's it, and again, it's, it's it's that idea of that there's this one type of people who have uh, ownership over morals and what is right and what is wrong, and another type that doesn't. And uh, it just doesn't bear out at all when you look at yeah. the 
when you just look at reality. No, this is a big part of what drove me away from the church as a teenager was my realization that uh, the people who held themselves up as moral paragons were clearly terrible people, Mm -hmm. and the people around me who actually were compassionate were atheists. And then I made the leap to, well, atheism must be right. (laughs) And the, well, and that's not a logical conclusion either, (laughs) but... but uh, uh, but it is the mistake of thinking that, uh, you know, it feels sort of like the argument that people make when they say, um, well, I'm a good person and racists are bad people, therefore nothing I say could possibly be racist. We're of the, well... Which I'm, is essentially <laughs> everybody in America right now. <laughs> but there's the... Well, I'm a religious person, and religious people are good people. Therefore, I must be a good person. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow, we went way away from this way. book. We really <laughs> didn't, though, is the thing. <laughs> well, I didn't read the book, so I don't know. <laughs> no, we're, we're actually, we're still on top. These are the core <laughs> issues of the book. So what do you think about everything that we've just rambled on about for the last I still want to run for president someday. <laughs> No, but now it's, um, I, I fell out with the church um, pretty much as a teenager for a lot of the mm. same reasons that you did. Yeah. Um, and then I moved to my family, moved my mother, and moved us to uh, Oklahoma for various reasons. And um, and I didn't fall in with really any of the churches there at all. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I, I my father's family was Catholic, and... And I fell out with them, and and so I would I would end up going to these little rural, um, very conservative, very evangelical churches in rural Oklahoma, and and basically the whole reason I fell out with those was because this is what I was taught about God. God is sitting up on His throne, <laughs> this this big scary daddy, who's saying, <laughs> "Love me, or I will hit you." Yeah. Love me or I will hit you. Smack. And I'm like, I, I don't I don't need that in my life. And so and so I stepped away from that. And then I found Unitarian Universalism. Uh-huh. And so I'm kind of a UU agnostic, really, is what I am. <laughs> um, I, uh, I I still I'm still unsure if there is or isn't some sort of higher being or soul or some such thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not completely convinced. Um, but but I am I am convinced um, that you know we need to strive for things like social justice. If you want to call me a social justice warrior with a sneer, conservative people, I will take that title on. Now you have two listeners. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, but but one so, of whom's a social justice cleric, right? So. Exactly. So so that's sort of sort of where I am. I I am just a big believer in. You know, if you find if if you believe and you find comfort in that, then fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. Don't try to shove it down my throat. Mm-hmm. Don't try to tell me what I should or should not believe. Don't tell me that I'm not a moral person because I don't believe the specific thing you believe. And I think that's where I still to this day have trouble with almost any Christian denomination that comes out and, and really tries to convert because I feel mm-hmm. like they're trying to shove their specific brand down my throat and i'm like no 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 thank you yeah so 
And honestly, I feel like... I feel about Christianity the way I feel about America's role in the world in the sense that it should not be an aggressive thing. It mm-hmm. should be... Ideally, what you should be doing is you should be doing such an awesome job that other people look and say, hey, we want to do it like we that. We want to be a, in your awesome <laughs> job. <laughs> you but, shouldn't be going to someone, grabbing them by the labels and say, do it like this. Or you will burn. <laughs> burn in hell. Like, no. Because nothing ever, I mean, nobody, people don't respond to that either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People respond to, um, uh, they reflect their community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how everybody, how people are behaving in the communities, generally yeah. the direction of how you're going to behave, and they, they mean this to, yeah. I mean that's a good point. Yeah. It's just nobody <laughs> likes to think of it that way because it's, it's too simple. Yeah. Like there there must be more to this than just oh I if I just act like a good person, mm-hmm. that will help other people act like a good person, or they will encourage. I don't have to tell them they should act like a good person. That's ultimately a lot of what brought me back to Christianity was actually seeing Christians who were deeply intelligent, thoughtful people Modeling that with a, yeah. yeah, and saying like oh. You actually have a very long sense of the history of this intellectual tradition. <laughs> and I would say that, going back to the screw tape letters, um, I would say that that's a book written by a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But it very much, very intellectual. And yeah. it very much gets to that hypocrisy of, I mean, when I'm reading it again, it's, it's surprising me just how much it's attacking, not atheists. Oh, yeah. It's attacking Quote oh, unquote, yeah. Christians. Mm-hmm. No, this is one of my favorite because uh, I'm a big Lewis fan. This entire not so silent planet is named after one of his books. Right. So, <laughs> so I am, but the I'm amazed by the degree to which fundamentalists and evangelicals have seized on Lewis because, in many respects, Lewis is doing something that is so dramatically opposed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To what they do, he, he, and I mean, Lewis is someone who has repeatedly asserted throughout his writing that he doesn't actually believe that you 100% need to be a Christian in order to get into heaven, mm-hmm. which is something that, that's pretty radical. You know? that's, that's, that's pretty radical thinking right there. <laughs> I mean, the way he phrases it, how does he put it? The um, if you want to get from England to France. Uh, yeah, technically you can swim the English Channel and do it, but there's other ways to it, which is why he promotes Christianity, because he believes it's the best way to do it, not because he believes it's the only way to do it, or the only way to be moral, or the only way. <laughs> yeah. Wow. No? Yeah. Well. Wow. All right. There you go. There we go. Yeah, Stephen was, wow, Bruce. That, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Stephen <laughs> Bruce to rain really in hell. Fault, <laughs> Down to one listener. <laughs> when we get to zero, the podcast an police 80, come in and take the equipment away. An 87-year-old woman in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> and weeping uncontrollably. And masturbating. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Using her tears as Lou. How am I the controversial <laughs> member of this podcast when you say shit like hey, this? Hey, look, four members. Wow, <laughs> oh, we went up. We hit the fetishists. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. You 
are listening to the Not-So-Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. Up next, we have a submission from one of our regulars. Joshua English Scrimshaw is the co-producer of Comedy Suitcase, dedicated to creating live comedy for all ages, as well as co-host of Get Off My World, a podcast dedicated to Doctor Who, and the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast, which revisits the great horror and suspense shows from the golden age of radio. Without further ado, enjoy the next chapter of his ongoing serial, Bucky Starburst, Junior's Space Cadet. Once again, it's time for Bucky Starburst, Junior Space Cadet. Brought to you by Jasper Tallywacker Jr., the self-titled Duke of Fandom. Today's adventure, an awful tempest mashed the air. But first, a word from the Duke himself, Jasper Tallywacker Jr. Salutations, Bucky fans. I wanted to take a moment to say, you're welcome. If it weren't for me, the world's greatest, and according to my mom, sexiest Bucky Starburst fan, your favorite adventure cereal would be deader than a Uranian rock squirrel hibernating in a Neptunian booster rocket. When the sponsors dropped this show like a hot potato, I swooped in with daddy's money and my own incredibly good taste and turned said hot potato into a steaming pile of sriracha waffle fries topped with blobs of cilantro lime sour cream. I am truly awesome incarnate. You may send your adoration in the form of thank you letters and or burnt offerings to Tallywhacker Tower Penthouse Suite in care of the boy who owns your dreams. That is all. Seriously, I'm done with you. Leave my sight before I kick all your unwashed masses. Announcer guy, get me out of this. And now back to Bucky Starburst, Junior Space Cadet. When last we left Tom Cosmic, he was sharing with Bucky Starburst an intimate first-person account of how he ended up naked and alone on Chappic Prime. It all started on the planet Fungus, when he discovered General Deathcap, evil leader of the Fungaloids, hiding in a crashed escape pod. To make matters even more shocking, General Deathcap wasn't a Fungaloid at all. He was a robot. Now, as the escape pod lifts off the planet, hurtling into the depths of space, General Deathcap tells Tom a story of his own, how a robot came to be leader of the Fungaloids. General Deathcap leaned back in the flight chair and patted his lap, pincers clanging against his metallic legs. It is story time, the robot said. Story time requires all humans to submit to the power of my lap. Okay, so... Here's where I need you to keep a seriously open mind. I was trapped in an escape pod with a robot who just sliced a fungaloid in two with a laser beam shot from the brim of his undeniably dapper snap-brimmed cap. My own ray gun had been knocked from my hand by the aforementioned fungaloid. I could see it half under a control panel on the other side of the pod, but there was no way in Hubble's law I was going to make it over there without Deathcap blasting me to oblivion. So yeah, guilty as charged. I sat in the quirking robot's lap. 
Are you comfortable? Asked the robot. Yeah, I lied, shifting awkwardly on the steel rods that served as the robot's thighs. Excellent. Now you will not speak. Speaking will result in death. Story time begins in five, four, three, two, one hundred and twenty space years ago, during the final battle of the robot wars, I was an ammunitions auditor aboard the rocket carrier Johnny Five. Humans had discovered our weakness, jazz. I knew the battle was lost when I heard the brain-scrambling cacophony of saxophones echoing through the rocket silos. The ship had been boarded by jazz-tronauts. Robots staggered and crashed to the floor, their positronic brains unable to process the irrational sound waves. I pulled my cap over my auditory sensors, muffling the din just enough to protect my brain functions as I retreated to the nearest escape pod. The ship shook with a massive explosion just as the pod jettisoned into space, and I watched on the view screen as the Johnny Five cracked in two. The war was over. Humans were victorious. My sensors picked up enough of the jazztronauts' music to identify the song. It was Rejoicing, from Ornette Coleman's 1959 album Tomorrow is the Question. Yes, humans, I thought. Rejoice now, because I know the answer to tomorrow. The answer is death. Death to all humans. Then I laughed maniacally, like this. <laughs> a strange sound for a robot to make. Perhaps the music had affected my positronic brain after all. But if it did, perhaps it affected it for the better. Perhaps it was the first step in the evolution of a new robot brain, one that could withstand the illogical agony of not just jazz, but improvised comedy and poetry slams and National Write-A-Novel Month. I mean, who does that? Who reads The Great Gatsby and thinks, yeah, I can write that in a month? You know, around my day job, three kids, and totally manageable drinking problem. No sweat. High five to me. <clears throat> anyway, my escape pod crashed on the remote planet Fungus, where I first encountered its ridiculous inhabitants, a peaceful race of living mushrooms who spent their days studying the stars and altering their minds. Once I determined the natives posed no imminent threat, I released a poison gas, killing two-thirds of the population. This established my strength and superiority. It also supplied me with bodies to dissect. Through my studies, I learned to genetically manipulate their spores, allowing me to create my own army of killer fungaloids. Eventually, I grew weapons and a fleet of living ships. After a paltry 100 years, I was ready for phase one of my revenge. I sent the fungaloids to attack the Earth. I couldn't keep quiet any longer. But Earth won the Spore War, I said. Your plan failed. Ah! Electricity coursed through Deathcap's steel thighs. It felt like somebody plugged my tailbone into a power outlet. I might have passed out. I don't really remember. What I do know is it burned every last hair off my butt cheeks. The whole escape pod smelled like sulfur, which I guess is what burning butt hair smells like. 
You learn something new every day, even when you don't want to. Please refrain from speech until my story is complete. My lap is currently set on stun, another interruption, and my groin will annihilate you. Now, where was I? Oh yes, the spore war. As you foolishly pointed out, my fungaloids lost, which was my plan all along. The war was just a distraction. It allowed me to plant an undercover agent in the ranks of Space Patrol. I believe you know her as Captain Gravity. My eyes boggled, but I didn't dare speak for fear of being exterminated by the electrified nether regions of an evil cap-wearing robot. Definitely a sentence that has never been uttered before. It did not take long for Captain Gravity to learn of Schrodinger's compromise and the existence of a robot prison planet. Phase two of my revenge was nearly complete. All I needed was the location of Chapic Prime, but the humans were uncharacteristically clever when it came to encrypting disinformation. Of course, uncharacteristically clever is also an apt description of Captain Gravity. It took her 20 space years but eventually she cracked it. The coordinates of Chappic Prime were hidden in the serial numbers of high-ranking Space Patrol officers. From there, it was a simple matter to hack into Space Patrol's HR files and steal the required serial numbers. All but one, that is. The serial number of a Black Ops Space Patrol agent had been scrubbed from the official record shortly after the Spore War. An agent known as Major Tom Cosmic. Again with the eye-boggling and the keeping of my mouth shut. It was Captain Gravity who warned Commander Space about spore launchers along the Truffle Nebula. Spore launchers that were nothing more than spectroscopic relay stations. It was Captain Gravity who encouraged him to send his best agent to destroy General Deathcap once and for all. It was Captain Gravity who sent you straight into my trap, but it was me, General Deathcap, who tricked you into giving me your name, rank, and serial number, providing me the final digits and the coordinates to Chappic Prime. Deathcap swiveled the flight chair so we faced the view screen, and there it was, the ominous red orb of Chappic Prime. Now it is time for phase three of my revenge. Release my robot brethren from their humiliation and destroy humanity once and for... Hey, where are you going? I leapt from Deathcap's lap, rolled and sprang up again, my ray gun in my hand. But this time, I didn't waste my ammo on the robot. Instead, I turned and blasted the main control console. The explosion knocked me across the pod and flipped Deathcap over the back of his chair. The pod was in freefall now. Flames crawled up the view screen and filled the air with thick black smoke. I crawled across the floor, groping blindly for my only chance of survival. The dismembered head of Gronkus, Deathcap's fungaloid lackey. You will die for this! Shrieked Deathcap, shooting blindly into the smoke with the brim of his laser cap. The light from his blasts briefly illuminated the pod. Through the swirling soot, I saw the dark shape of the fungaloid's head. I made a leap for it. 
Just as the pod hit the force field, the force field that surrounds Chappic Prime, the force field that destroys all inorganic material on contact, inorganic material like the escape pod and general death cap and synthetic clothing. All of it was instantly vaporized. But me? I floated to safety, naked as the day I was harvested from the fetus farm. The fungaloid's head held above me like an umbrella, its huge cap catching the air and slowing what would have otherwise been a fatal splat. I was only on Chappic Prime a few hours before I realized that nudity combined with erratic behavior caused cognitive dissonance in robot brains. After I confused and killed a few of them, they dubbed me Unclad the Robot Slayer, which was pretty cool, almost as cool as the desert wind blowing against my sweaty parts. Eventually, I found this place. It was all set up with a record player, this beanbag chair, that waterbed, the framed picture of Mel Torme serenading a giant lady's cleavage. It was like somebody knew I was coming. But that's not the weirdest thing. There was also an interstellar communicator with just enough power for one message. And a note. It read, Dear Major Cosmic, if you value the future of humanity, please send the following message to Space Patrol HQ immediately. The rest of the note was just the lyrics to Space Oddity, only with your name added to the end. Seemed kind of silly, but hey, a few weeks ago, being stripped naked by a force field and trapped on a planet of killer robots seemed kind of silly too. So I sent the message, and ten space days later, you showed up with Captain Gravity, General Deathcap's undercover agent. I was about to kill her myself when that robot buried her under a sand dune. But now you know everything I know, kid, said Tom Cosmic, seamlessly returning narration duties to the third person. Suffering spacesuits, said Bucky, his eyes wide with astonishment. That was one heck of an info dump. I know, said Tom. Why don't you just sit there and let it soak in for a second? I'll turn the record over. Tom froze. The silence was suddenly deafening. Wait, he said. How long has that record been over? I don't know, said Bucky. I was so engrossed in your story, I didn't notice the music stop. Jazz is the only thing stopping the robot hordes from attacking, cried Tom. We have to flip that record now. Tom tried to scramble to his feet, but his sweaty skin stuck to the plastic of the beanbag chair. Bucky attempted to leap from the waterbed, but the mattress dipped and swelled, tossing him back onto the bed. Both heroes struggled to get up, flailing their arms and legs in the air like two overturned turtles auditioning for the Rockettes. But never fear, boys and girls. The third-person narrator is here. I picked up the needle and set it back down at the beginning of the record. The crazy sounds of Sun Ra and his orchestra once again filled the tiny room. Tom and Bucky stopped thrashing and stared at me. Who the hell are you? said Tom. And why do you look so familiar? Not to mention strangely attractive, added Bucky. I chuckled and smiled a strangely attractive smile. Because, 
I said. I'm Bucky Starburst from the future. Oh, for crying out loud. Time travel? Time travel? I'm out of here. Tune in next time. Bucky Starburst, Junior Space Cadet, blah, 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 blah. Time travel. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Not So Silent Planet. Um, how many ways can you find uh, um, to. Oh, a very limited out? number, right? Yeah, <laughs> so far. Sure. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to the bottom soon, folks. But uh, right now, Michael Merriam is going to share some of his original material with us. You wait, ready? Let wait, me turn wait. my phone off. Oh, my God. In case it rings. <laughs> I didn't care after this point. Okay, right. ladies and gentlemen, we're all going to wait. No, I did it already. All right. <laughs> well done. All right. Well oiled machine here. Philip just threw the microphone at Michael. <laughs> uh, I did. It was very savage. <laughs> wow, I've been attacked with a microphone. Hey, look, we're up at 15 listeners all of a sudden. <laughs> violence sells. You like microphone violence. <laughs> all right. Uh, this is called Protect and Serve. Constable George Wellner took off his oversized hat and ran a hand through what remained of his white hair. At 71 years, he was getting too old for this sort of thing. Now, John, there's no need for anyone to get hurt. I just want you to settle down. Please, honey, listen to Constable Wellner. You be quiet, John Olson cried, anguish playing on his face as he kept the double-barreled shotgun train on his wife. You ain't fooling me. I saw you. What exactly do you think she, she did, Constable Wilner asked, looking from husband to wife. Maud, you ain't been seeing another man, have you? Maud Olson shook her head, tears staining her broad, Nordic face. No, sir, nothing of the kind. John thumbed back the hammers on both barrels. I told you to shut up. Constable Wellner stood up from where he sat on the basement steps and placed a hand on his revolver. In a 42-year career in law enforcement, he had fired his weapon just once in the line of duty to kill a rabbit raccoon. He did not want today to be the first time he used it on another man. John, I'm warning you. John turned toward him, his brown eyes wide and wild. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. Try me. She ain't Maud. She's some kind of... Monster. John, you've been spending too much time down at the movie house watching those body snatcher films. I saw it, George. I'm telling you, she ain't my wife. Constable Wellner glanced at the woman. She looks like Maud Olson to me. I saw some kind of orange stuff coming out of her ears. Wellner frowned, making the lines on his face deepen. Maud, are you sick? Should I walk you down to Doc Mueller's? It wasn't like that, George. It was like some kind of thick syrup or something. Constable George Wellner sighed. He had been admiring Paul Spalding's new DeSoto and teasing Paul's youngest boy about needing a haircut again when Penelope Olson came running up to him, crying that her father was going to kill her mother. George made his way to the family home as quickly as his aging legs would carry him. When he reached the basement of the Olson house, he had actually needed to sit down and catch his breath. Luckily, his presence seemed enough to keep John Olson from doing something stupid. John, how long have I known you and Maud? John swallowed. All of our lives? Constable Willner nodded. That's right. I watched the two of you grow up right here in Morningside, get married and have a daughter of your own. Wouldn't you think I'd know if something was strange about Maud? 
John hesitated for a minute, lowering the shotgun. You haven't seen all I've seen. You don't live with her. She's different. When John Olson relaxed and lowered the shotgun, Wildner took his hand away from his own weapon. Different how, Constable Wildner asked as Maud Olson sniffed back tears where she sat huddled in a corner. She's just different, that's all. Wilner frowned. Well, if it's not another man, then is she not taking care of the house or cooking dinner or something? John shook his head. The house is fine, and dinner's hot and ready every night when I get home from work. Wilner nodded. A thought occurred to him. He felt uncomfortable asking, but cleared his throat and forged ahead. Well, then, um, is it? No, John Olson said, blushing brightly. That's been better than ever. <laughs> Constable Wilner took off his glasses and rubbed the side of his nose. So let me get this straight. Maud ain't fooling around, keeps a clean house, dinner's ready every night, and you're having good relations with each other. Yes, she's different. <laughs> Constable shook his head. Son, how much have you had to drink? <laughs> I haven't had anything. John thought for a second. Well, maybe a couple of beers, but that doesn't change what I saw. <laughs> Wellner walked over to John Olson and stood next to him. John, I want you to think about what you're saying. John blinked in confusion, but Wellner put a hand on John's shoulder. He turned toward Maud Olson and reached out a hand. Come here, Maud. She stood, smoothed her skirt, and started toward the two men. John began to bring the shotgun back up, but the constable took the barrels in a firm grip and held them down. He knew the younger man gripped the shotgun out of his grasp in an instant, but John just stood there, watching Maud approach. She stopped in front of them. John, I want you to look at your wife, Constable Wilner said. Go on, just look at her. Maud sniffed, her nose red and eyes puffy from crying. John, please, just look at me. John looked at Maud. You two have been together since what? Your junior year of high school? Wilner asked. Sophomore year, John corrected. Right. <laughs> and I found you two kids in the back of your daddy's old Nash how many times? John Olson blushed, and Maud followed suit. So what I'm trying to say, Constable Wilner finished, is that I never saw two people crazier about each other. Now, John, I want you to hand me the shotgun. John Olson hesitated for several seconds, indecision in his face. Honey, please, just give Constable Wilner the shotgun. Maud reached up and placed a tender hand on her husband's cheek. We can forget all about this. I'll make your favorite dinner, please. John seemed to deflate. Your meatloaf? Maud smiled at him. Of course. John released the shotgun. Constable Wilner took the weapon and carefully placed the hammers back down. Now, I want to talk to your missus for a minute. So why don't you head on upstairs? John nodded and ran his shaking hand through his brown hair. I I think I need to lie down. That's a good idea, Wilner agreed. And no more Saturday <laughs> matinees for a couple months, okay? Those movies are putting funny ideas into your head. I promise, John Olson mumbled as he started up the stairs. Wilner heard the door close at the top. Constable Wilner, I can't thank you enough, Maud said. I don't know what's gotten into John lately. George Wilner smiled at her. You have a seat, Maud, he said, waving at a battered old chair in the middle of the basement. John waited for her to sit down and then ambled back to the steps. He settled himself on the third one, the shotgun across his knees. Like I said, I've known John and Maud Olson all their lives. Constable Wilner pointed the shotgun at her. So why don't you tell me what's really going on? Maud opened her mouth in surprise. Constable, I ain't Maud Olson. The Maud Olson I've known since she was a little girl would have taken this shotgun away from John on her own shoot him out hard enough to blister paint from the walls and then sent him to sleep it off over at her brother's house. <laughs> George gave her a grim look. The Maud Olson I know hasn't called me constable in almost 25 years. George, it's a little late for that. Besides, alien movies are not, 
John Olson never had enough imagination to think up some kind of story about orange syrup coming from his wife's ears. So why don't you tell me what's really going on here? Maude gave him a flat look for several seconds and then shrugged. You wouldn't believe me. Just try me. She smiled and said, okay, I am exactly what John thinks I am. George nodded. I suppose that you can prove it. She frowned in concentration and then made a retching noise and spit up a gob of thick orange substance into her hand. Good enough? George nodded shakily and tightened his grip on the shotgun. He sat quietly while she swallowed it again, and he took a deep breath. Yeah. Are you really an alien? Yes. We crashed here almost 400 of your years ago. We've been trying to blend in, live our lives, study your planet until we are rescued. How many of you are there? George asked. There are 128 of us still alive. Over half our number died shortly after we crashed. In your ship? We were the ship, Constable Wilner. What? She shook her head. It is very complex, and I'm afraid beyond your scientific knowledge. The alien wearing Maud Olson's form looked him in the eyes. We only want to go home. We don't mean any harm. What about Maud Olson? What did you do to her? Maud Olson no longer needed this body. George narrowed his eyes and raised the barrels of the gun. What's that supposed to mean? She accidentally electrocuted herself with a string of Christmas tree lights. When she died, I was in a position to take over her body. The alien smiled gently at Constable Weldner. I was living in the Olsen home as a poinsettia. I found it an easy way to observe your family structure. It was a simple matter for me to slip inside her body and restart its basic functions. I've managed to absorb many of her memories and experiences, but I'm afraid my knowledge of her life is incomplete. That lack of knowledge is one of the reasons we are prohibited from using human hosts. Well, that and it's hard to keep them oozing out all over the place because of the effort it takes to operate a body, but I just couldn't resist the opportunity to live as a human for a time. Are you going to shoot me now? Wellner frowned. Would it do any good if I did? I would leak orange fluids all over the basement carpet, but otherwise be unharmed. Fair enough, Wilner said, <laughs> lowering the shotgun. How do I know your people won't try to take over Earth? She laughed. Frankly, your planet, not terribly interesting. We just want to go home. And until then, we'll just observe and study. Well, you've got a lot to learn about being Maude Olson, but as long as you treat John and Penny all right, Wilner shrugged. The way I see it, John gets to keep his wife and Penny your mother for a bit longer. John broke the shotgun open and unloaded it, snapped it closed, stood and pocketed the shells, and set the shotgun at the foot of the stairs. I just want to keep the peace. You might think we're boring, but I like Morningside nice and quiet. The alien wearing Maude Olson's body stood and smoothed her blouse and skirt. We appreciate the work that you have put into making Morningside a safe community for us all. Yeah. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a meatloaf to prepare. Wilner let her walk past them. As they reached the top of the stairs, he asked, Are more of you living in Morningside? Maud turned and nodded, giving him a solemn look. Oh, yes. And it's not only my people who live here for the security and safety. Many of your planet's outcasts dwell in Morningside. I'm sorry? <laughs> there are stranger things in heaven and earth. She paused with her hand on the doorknob. You don't really think the Spaldings are just extremely hairy, or that the Mercers both work, both work night shift because they enjoy it. I hadn't really thought much about it. As long as I don't break the law, there's no reason for me to stick my nose in their private affairs. <laughs> exactly. Now, I need to go pretend that I'm a perfect little wife, just like on the television, and cook my husband dinner. <laughs> Wilner bid her goodbye. He stood on the Olsen's porch for a minute to clear his head and then set off to finish his rounds up and down the two-square-block shopping district. As he strolled along the sidewalk reading the residents of his little town, 
He could not help but look at them in a different light. Little things were starting to add up in his mind. Things he'd never paid too much attention to before. Yeah. Aliens? Werewolves? Vampires? As long as they were law-abiding, it didn't matter. They were the people that he had sworn to protect and serve. Constable George Wellner finished his rounds and slowly ambled home. Woo! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, keep it going for Michael Merriam! I assume everyone listening to this is applauding right now. <laughs> so what, um, what, I, I'm, I'm assuming that you were inspired, when did you write this, by the way? Uh, it was after I moved here. Um, so was, a while ago? Probably 2006, 2007, mm. something like that. Were you inspired <laughs> by any real life? So, idea. <laughs> it seems metaphorical. Well, so the, the, the basis of this got started. Um, I, uh, I don't remember where I was. I was living over in Edina at the time. I live over in Hopkins now, but I was living in Edina. And, and there was an article. I can see living in Edina would make you feel this way. Feel to Hopkins, right? Yeah, some, some shit's going on here. Some shit's going on here. So, so I was I was living over there, and there was an article in one of the Sun newspapers about how before there used to be a community. It's still technically a community called Morningside, right? Um, that is now actually part of Edina, but it used to actually be its own little <laughs> tiny, tiny little town. Yeah. Um, and it had the same constable for the longest time. I don't remember this guy's name, but he retired shortly after the two towns merged, and he was well into his 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he fired his firearm once in all the years. He'd been a police officer in Morningside. Yeah. He was shooting at a car full of bank robbers coming out of Edina. Right. Um, and I got thinking, yes, this is just like this little, quiet, tiny city community that this you know, officer has kept... You know, all these years where nothing really ever happens except, you know, maybe the occasional domestic dispute or maybe the occasional speeder yeah. or, or kids. And I'm like, <clears throat> it sounds beautiful and safe and boring as hell. If I was a monster, I would totally want to live there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nobody would really notice me as long as. <laughs> and so that was kind of the start of this story. Um, well, it's, and, it's the, the Salem's Lot. Mm -hmm. thing, right? That's one of my favorite. Uh, so Salem's Lot is uh, Stephen King's big vampire book where... It's uh, a book about like large vampires? The oh, book it's a big it's vampire book. It's a, oh, okay. There we go. It's not about like, giant vampires. No, I was, gonna, I was no, just gonna no, wait. No, <laughs> no, I want to see that giant vampire book by Stephen King. Oh, that sounds God. good. Because not only are they vampires, <laughs> they're, giants. they're also giant. Imagine their teeth. They're not giant vampires. They're not they very like, good at concealing themselves. No. <laughs> <laughs> but but they, try to, they try to blend in with society. <laughs> they're worried about their vampirism. They don't even think about the fact that they're giants. <laughs> the the premise of this book was largely that uh, Dracula was kind of an idiot for trying to pick a major metropolis like London to insert himself into. If he was smart, he would just slip himself into a small town mm -hmm. and just feed on the people and make himself lord. And that's what... Salem's Lot, Maine, is mm -hmm. the the vampire lord who just goes to some like New England, you know, small town. Is the entire is the entire town of Salem's, Salem's Lot vampires? By the end, yeah. By the end, spoiler. It is. <laughs> spoiler on a forty year old book. 
<laughs> so, in that case, the but, but constable also, has a right has has reason to be concerned. But I also had the thought, listening to your story of because uh, the constable in Salem's Lot is Parkins Gillespie, mm-hmm. who's not very good at his job. No, <laughs> but his his last appearance in the book is when. You know, the team of vampire hunters who have figured out what's going on come up to him and say, look, this is happening to our town. Are you going to help us? And he says, nope, Nope. I'm leaving. (laughs) And it's coming as the, you know, I see the movies these kids watch these (laughs) days. They probably like being vampires. (laughs) 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 Which is why... your story is kind of refreshing in that respect. Yeah, of, well, well of a, whatever. It, well, it, it, it is a very benevolent view of a police officer who just sort of... This is true. This is true. <laughs> most, uh, most, uh, sadly, most of the law enforcement officers I write in my fiction are, are either incompetent or nasty or both. Mm-hmm. Um, because in fiction, unless you're writing an actual crime procedural where, the, right. where the cop is the hero, those are usually the kind of cops you need. Mm-hmm. So, and I also feel like it's the. I mean, obviously, we're in the middle of a national nightmare right now of cops abusing their power, yes. and the, and all. Uh, my thought always looking at this is, wow, I feel so bad for the actual good cops out there who have to deal with how shitty these other cops are being, mm-hmm. like the guys who are actually trying to do a good job. And uh, there are these people. Well, we could go down this. We could go down we this could road totally now, just, just like we did with because, the religion. Yeah, earlier. I know because I could say these good, these quote unquote good, good cops, um, never seem to, uh, you know, turn in their the bad cops when they do really yeah. shitty things or shoot somebody, <laughs> and they'll always side with the bad cops no matter what. And right, so right. There's, a, there's a part of me that's like, you know what? Fuck those good cops. <laughs> if they're just going to be, if they're going to be complicit with the bad cops, then they're just bad cops. I also do have the thought with uh, cops that I do with, uh, like, soldiers or doctors or various, uh, where when I think it's probably a small percentage of them that do abuse their power, but when they do abuse their power, the effects are Devastating, and they're, <laughs> and they're totally protected. Yeah, exactly. The yeah, we have yep. taken your 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 quirky story about a small town <laughs> cop and turned it into a discussion about police. But abuse. it's also, so, but it's, also, also it's fun. But it's, it's interesting because he can be a good. He, he's he's not influenced by a, being a part of a larger organization of police officers where he has to maybe right. Uh, back up. Uh, maybe he's a good guy, and he has to back up a bad cop because he's the he's the small town. He's, so it. he's yeah. it. So he can just he can just be a good guy. Yeah. And but if he was, yeah. if he was a part of a bigger town, part of a big uh, bigger department, then at a certain point, somebody's going to do something shitty, and it seems yeah. like universally. That shittiness that will be protected. Yes. Well, well, it's the Andy Griffith thing right mm-hmm. like he's he's a great cop because he's kind of the only cop yeah. <laughs> like it's him and barney fife half the time <laughs> but, but, no, that, that's an interesting observation yeah. though because like again i'm going to go back to growing up rural in oklahoma mm-hmm. and in a lot of these little rural towns it's a one two-man police department 
right. supplemented by the county sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. And so if you have these one, two-man police departments, you can get, you know, the 10-god dictator police officers right. who are shit. But if he's the only cop in this town and he's shit too long to these mm -hmm. 500 people, they will just get rid of him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even if that means you vote everybody in town out of office. Yeah. <laughs> now, the county sheriff's office might hire him, so you might still have him hanging around periodically. But... But that's one way to deal um, with yeah. a bad cop, frankly, in small town. Is is it's there's not as much protection, I don't think, for a bad cop. No. Incompetent yeah. cops are another matter. Because <laughs> people don't recognize incompetence as easily. Right. Well, I remember uh, what was it? It was an interview with the. Uh, as long as the comp, as long as the <laughs> incompetence is confident. If yes. You're confidently incompetent. Right. People will. They think you're confident. <laughs> right. I, I, I saw an interview with a cop recently. I died. I just can't remember where it was. But mm -hmm. he was talking about uh, how there is a very small percentage of cops that will always do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And there is a very small percentage of cops that will always do the wrong thing. But uh, the vast bulk of cops will just go with whatever the cop they're with. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. wants to do. Because <laughs> they're just jobbers who want to go back home to their wife and their kid yeah. and their beer. <laughs> you know? Well, and they're ha and it's the brothers in arms mentality. Yeah. It is the soldier mentality. It's mm -hmm. like we're in the trenches well, together. Well, and a lot of them are ex-soldiers. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and when you look at the differences in, in, I'm seeing in how police officers are trained, they're being trained more like soldiers and equipped more like soldiers and taught mm -hmm. more of the us first them oh, as yeah. opposed That's, to, yeah. you, know, mm -hmm. you know, everybody out there wants to kill you. And, you know. and soldiers no, I, I, don't, I, I, and yeah. there's like, there's, there's, I, oh God, I can't remember his name. <laughs> Might've been Chris Hedges. Uh, <clears throat> they said that, that soldiers don't, you, when you interview soldiers, like, what are you fighting for? And they never say the cause or my country. Mm -hmm. They say I'm fighting for the guy next to me. Right. Because yep. that's what it eventually comes down to. Right. Because the world, the entire world, especially when things are mm -hmm. in crisis mode, the entire world shrinks down to the immediate vicinity and who is just there with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, are you guys familiar with the, the theory of the monkey sphere? I don't know. Okay. So the, the, the theory of the monkey sphere is mm -hmm. that each one of us, has a certain number of people who we can really only have in our sphere, no matter how mm. many other people there are in the world. Oh, yeah, so it's and, like and 12. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like, like 12 close, X number this, and the total, when you get to just even the tangential people, is still about 150 tops. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that like you said in the military, that's what happens, is that, that my squad, my four-man squad, my, you know, eight-man unit, my 16-man platoon, that becomes your sphere of people. Right. And then the next step out to, you know, your your division, your battalion, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's why movies like a lot of the war movies, especially made about Vietnam, focused on the platoon level. Yeah. Um, that, that eight to 16-man, that, that fire squad to platoon level, because that's really, like you said, that's where I'm fighting for these guys around me. Mm -hmm. um, and police officers do the same thing. You get on a department, especially a mid-sized department that has 15, 20 guys on it, like a Hopkins or a Dina or whatever, mm -hmm. and they're all in this together. With large police departments, it's by precinct. Mm -hmm. you know, and then precincts are broken down by squad. Right. So, 
So it's still very much a military organization. Which is it's a shame because well, you can but, see but why people would yeah. be mm-hmm. – you can see why soldiers would be so extreme and immoral in, in moments, even really good guy, because mm-hmm. they're so afraid mm-hmm. and they're so at risk. But cops, ne- cops aren't necessarily at as much risk as they think they are. Cops, cops seem to be, in from my experience, they seem to be more afraid than they should be, and that's and it's probably largely out of the fact that all they ever do is come in contact with people who are criminals or and, have. And that's a big part of their problem. They spend so much time dealing with people that are criminals. They just get to the point where they assume everybody is a criminal that I come mm-hmm. in contact with. Mm-hmm. Eight-year-old on a bicycle, yeah, yeah, who crossed in the middle of the street, might have a machine gun. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're just, they're just all. And so they're very twitchy. Yes. But they don't, but if you look at the statistics, like the, the uh, danger level of a, of a police officer is, is really, is not low, but it's no. like number 15 on, it's below construction worker, it's below mm-hmm. taxi driver, it's mm-hmm. below, it's below about, it's below like maintenance worker. Mm-hmm. And you don't see all these people being, going to work just totally on edge, no. like ready to, ah. I, I used to work in a convenience store off the interstate mm-hmm. overnight, very secluded. And, and the highway patrol guys told me, he said, actually, you are in more danger than I am mm-hmm. because you're unarmed and you're a sitting target and you've got a lot of cash and you've got beer. Yeah. <laughs> you're in more danger than I am, frankly. Well, yeah. And I'm like, great. I, I, I have had and the I'm thought. I'm making minimum fucking wage. <laughs> I, I have had the thought that the increasingly in the past couple of years, the language that we use to talk about police officers is the language that we use to talk about bears. You know, because we're all worried the, about being mauled by a bear. You know, like don't move too much, don't agitate them, don't get too excited, <laughs> don't like play dead, play dead, or they will kill you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's no. Not, that is totally ridiculous that's, that we've gotten to that point. Yeah, but, but it has. We've gotten to that point, and we and we and we're developing this culture of compliance mm-hmm. where. If someone in authority gives you any kind of ridiculous order, whether it's legal or not, whether it's against your constitutional rights or not, if you don't immediately comply, well, then they can just beat you with a stick, yeah. stop you on the curb, haul you to jail. Yeah. You know. And, and I mean, I'm in the camp that, like, you shouldn't flick off a police officer who pulls you over, but you also shouldn't be terrified yeah. to flick yes. off a police officer who pulls you over. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, they should be held to a higher standard. It's the the yeah and I mean, and <laughs> well yeah now again we're getting way off topic here but you know what I guess that's, that's your is, story about aliens is now sort of, <laughs> sort of the point, I mean it's sort of one one of the points of of this <coughs> fiction writing is is that it it, it technically is supposed to generate ideas about mm-hmm. the real world and so right. that, uh, but. Um, what was the point you just made? Because I had something that was going to build off, and I forgot your point. Flicking off police officers off police who are officers. bears. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember my point. I had a point, but, I but it is—it is the whole Andy Griffith thing of uh, police officers should be given a lot of latitude, and they should be the relaxed Andy Griffith. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to swing it right around into politics. I don't care about him. I'm going to say that. Here is surprise. (laughs) But it is the one of the one of my favorite libertarian lines I've heard is uh, uh, 
Andy Griffith is a libertarian, a Republican is Barney Fife. <laughs> of the, uh, like, if in Mayberry a transgender person moved in, Andy Griffith might have his opinions or sigh or roll his right. eyes. But he would, eyebrow, but, you know. He would protect that person and he would, whereas Barney Fife would be reaching for his gun and screaming and, and, and doing <laughs> You know, the, the the opinion of the officers shouldn't matter. It shouldn't. Well, it's true, but it, it, I think, I mean, a big problem, I think, is that for whatever reason, a lot of people who decide to become police officers are people who are afraid. They're people who are afraid of the other and afraid of uh, yeah. of the person on the other side of the tracks. Uh, and it's for whatever reason that that fear that makes them feel like they, there needs to be protection in the world, and they go into law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, they're into guns, they're into being st- strong, they're into defense and protection. But, but it's a lot of them are, ex- of are ex-military who yeah. are already suffering from a lot, especially this generation of cops mm-hmm. I've seen. A lot of them are ex-military who are already, frankly, suffering from undiagnosed, untreated PTSD. I mean. Mm-hmm. They, they, they have already and, got, and they view themselves as being in a hostile yeah constantly yeah <laughs> which is, to go, we'll go back to your story here's this guy who who is a very level headed person who doesn't have that and can sit there and see a vampire and an alien and be like okay I'm going to talk to you and oh that's a reasonable story and you go ahead and live your life mm-hmm. which technically is how we should treat any situation where we come into <laughs> contact with something that we don't understand. All right, let's figure this out. Right. Make a determination. Right. Well, and walk like, away. Are you eating people in Morningside? No, <laughs> it's not my problem. <laughs> are you eating people in Dinah? It's their problem. <laughs> All right. I think that's a good point. If you're eating people in a Dinah, it's their problem. That was Michael Merriam. We'll be right back. You are listening to the Not-So-Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. If you're in the Twin Cities metro area and would like to hear some live storytelling, or even sign up to perform yourself, we present a recurring monthly open mic at Kieran's Irish Pub in downtown Minneapolis. More information about this and many other spoken word events in the area are available at wordsprout.org. And now, back to the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Not-So-Silent Planet. Oh my god, you're so exasperated. I am a speculative podcast. <laughs> god, he was so close that time. <laughs> oh, we're back. <laughs> I always like that little awkward pause and then you going... Uh, <laughs> it's always such a good way to start every, every section. Every section. The weary sign. <laughs> but, yep. uh, hey, Fringe, we doing it? <laughs> Wait. Is this one coming, is this one recording now coming out before or after the last one we just recorded? After. And the last one we weren't quite sure... <laughs> That would make it out in time to Fringe. But this one definitely Is this for Fringe 2018? <laughs> yeah. You're, okay. 
I'm. I might. I, I'm doing a show. Parent. I, I, I guess yeah. I'm going to be in a show. You're going to be in a show. show. Yeah, you got in on May third, twenty seventeen. So, <laughs> I um. I did not. Congratulations. <laughs> I uh. I, I I'm going to do a storytelling show in Victoria, Canada, for anybody, any Canadian listeners out there. What um, up, Canadian listeners? <laughs> that's the. That's all the. And then maybe I'll get into the fringe. I don't know. I guess we'll yeah. see. You, you listening to this will have more information than I have right now. <laughs> here's, here's an ironic thing. There's going to be an explosion, and many people on the waiting list will die, and even someone who didn't apply, like Michael Merriam, is going to end up in the fringe doing a... Be getting that email going, can you do a show? Everybody else is dead. <laughs> You're on our list of people who are still alive. You know, the worst scenario is that this actually happens. And we are the douchebags who made this joke. Well, we're not going to be douchebags. We're going to be suspects. (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's true, isn't it? It's like The the three deadliest men in America. I'm going to write that for Fringe, (laughs) where we start knocking off other Fringe show performers in order to get into Fringe, even though we didn't even apply. I, I actually I did have that idea for a friend show that will be a murder mystery. I love and, it. And uh, everyone, all the suspects will be everyone on the waiting list. I love Below it. the person who's killed. I love it. <laughs> all right, it's a great idea. Yeah. And I'm work, doing you're working on that script. At yeah. this point, I'm doing Serpentine, a verse tragedy about Theresius. Oh God. But uh, I have rewritten this like three times in the past week. So is, tell me about realistically. This. I don't know that, that I'm not. not I'm not schooled in the way of your knowledge. You're about to get schooled. So. <laughs> oh. so what is this about? Who is this? Who is this? Tiresias? He's uh, a double gendered Greek prophet. So he has a penis and a vagina. Old man of the wrinkled and female breast, as uh, the wasteland puts it. So he has a penis and a vagina. <laughs> At various points in his slash her slash zeer life. Is one of the points a penis? <laughs> one of the points You are is really hung penis. up on the idea of a penis. <laughs> well... <laughs> you, you can actually you can actually hang up a lot of uh, things on a penis. I, I, I want to be a hundred percent clear oh, that God. if you die in the next week, you're gonna I, play this at my funeral. No, I'm play going it. to play the clip of Michael Marion saying, "You are really hung up on the idea of a penis." <laughs> 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 I'm just gonna I, 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 I hope I hope you do. I hope that you go up there in front of all my family, friends, <laughs> all ten people, and you and you you put the the speakers on. You're like, I'm gonna. All right. He is gonna hold a boombox. Yeah, you hold a boombox. Oh, yeah. Say anything, and then just Michael Merriam going. He is. You're really hung up on the idea of a penis, and then you just walk out of the church or wherever it is. And then no, and you just don't come back, and you just do that. You didn't even, you weren't even scheduled to give a talk. You just push because nobody's gonna stop you. It's a funeral. Right. Someone might stop me. No, well, you walk put yourself up. on the list of people to talk. You know? No, you won't. You'll be stopped. You'll be. Oh, like that's. Oh, that he. Oh, Ben was at his wedding. Okay. Yeah. Getting all this stuff together. They were in a podcast. Yeah, he's gonna say something <laughs> sweet. Um, um, <laughs> 
You are really hung up on the idea of a penis. <laughs> Just out. <laughs> you, walk, you even have like, you wear like hard sole shoes so you make a click, 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 click sound as you walk out awkwardly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be totally honest. I might murder you <laughs> just to have the opportunity to do this. <laughs> um, well, if I actually do die, then I, can, I hope this entire conversation is played on the boombox. After you, you have to leave and come back after 15 minutes and then play the rest of this conversation. And then everybody will understand. <laughs> Okay, anyway. But will, oh, they, will they understand? <laughs> Hello. Well, if, they, if they don't, well, fuck them. Oh, if man. Don't I want to have people walking out of my hey, funeral. Hey, hey, mourning family members of Ben. <laughs> if you don't understand this, Ben says, fuck you, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> oh. oh, this is great. I love being on this show. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't know why we don't have more <laughs> listeners. It doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> hey, what you, what are you promoting? Uh, Serpentine. I just said oh, that's this. Right. That's what we got off of this whole conversation. Grab your damn hat. <laughs> oh, jeez. Draw. Say time. a law, and we will judge the law. I think Michael does the first oh. as our guest of honor. <laughs> I've done four of these now. Am I a reoccurring character in this? <laughs> well, this is very apropos. Yeah. The book of Revelation is a bunch of meaningless hogwash. The old Greek system of elements, earth, air, fire, water, is also meaningless hogwash. Disagree with both. Okay. Ben? <laughs> well, I don't understand. Okay. <laughs> hogwash. Book of Revelation is a bunch of meaningless hogwash, as opposed to the rest of it. <laughs> yes, the rest of it yes, is very literal. As opposed to the rest of it, because the various books are doing very different things, and I will defend that idea. But uh, the Book of Revelation is unusually esoteric. So you you kind of agree with this then? I don't, because thank you for again. asking, Ben. <laughs> Because uh, do, do go on. There are a variety of beliefs about the Book of Revelations in the Christian community. Mm -hmm. And the one that I ascribe to is that, first of all, I think it's important that we recognize that there were a number of apocalyptic texts that were published at the time. It was not unique. Mm -hmm. And so this uh, was the one that climbed its way to the top. This was the one that happened to be secreted into the Bible. <laughs> but oh wait, wait! I have to stop you here. If if you are admitting that there was multiple different competing texts and this one got adopted, you say admitting as though I have trouble like well, acknowledging but, okay, this fact. Well, okay, but but, <laughs> you, but you but you believe this one. I am saying so. Here's the point <laughs> I was trying to make before Ben <laughs> had his greater point <laughs> that he hasn't articulated. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, most of these apocalyptic texts were not referencing an event to take place in the future. Okay. They were metaphorical texts that were referencing events happening at the time. And I truly believe that the book of Revelations is not referencing some grand apocalypse that's going to happen 
either a thousand years ago or a thousand years from now, it is referencing a specific Romano-Jewish conflict that was taking place at the time it was written. Um, hmm. That sounds like a cop-out to me. Hogwash, that's what <laughs> You know what? You're right. That sounds like hogwash. I think you just argued your way into hogwash. Often. But I love hogs and I love wash. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, so how about the second half? The old Greek system of elements, earth, air, fire, water, is also meaningless hogwash. I mean, I, it's I not... I go outside and walk on the earth. I, I, I breathe the air. I get burned when I touch fire. I, well, they're earth, there. air, fire, water are things. They are things. So I will also dive on this and say, oh, again, boy. oh, God, here we go. <laughs> I do not mean to defend these as, like, the building elements of reality, but I will say that what these did, intentionally or not, was articulate energy and the three forms of matter. Very good. Solid, liquid, gas, and energy. Yeah, and then the idea of elements kind of changed with with time, but... Hmm. But, that like, point, this, the, this wasn't an idiotic thing that Aristotle said. So hogwash was is like, too strong a word. What you're saying, this, is, this was the beginning building block. Yeah. Okay. It says, this is somebody, he this was is, wrong. This he is, was yeah, absolutely he wrong. Was Aristotle, who is, uh, somewhere. Who is, who is, <laughs> Aristotle, who is often wrong. Yeah, but yeah. he was basically looking at the world mm-hmm. and... Pointing out things he saw, yeah. and then declaring those things to be the absolute truths. Yeah, like you know, the can you women them? teeth thing, right? Am I right, boys? The, the what? what? No, it's one of the most. In, uh, so, <laughs> one of Aristotle was wrong about many, many things, but yep. one of the people enjoy pointing at, and they are right to enjoy it because it is hilarious that uh, he said. Women's mouths contain less teeth than men do, and he never thought to actually it test this. It. But that he does, but that, like, he does that stuff. When you read about this, he does it all the time. He just does like, do it all the time. He's, uh, well, he's not I, a great scientist. I am actually. I actually didn't know the scientific method very well. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated by Aristotle because it seems like is he was he really the best mind of his time? Because that really is impressive. Maybe maybe me. not. It may just be that his stuff survived. Right. Okay. There was some, I love the idea that there was down to. one other philosopher <laughs> who we always argued with who none of his work survived. But he was way smarter. He was like, no, I think there's actually way more elements. Uh, and there's these things called atoms and germs. And then that guy was oh, like, you fucking his, idiot. Atoms precede Aristotle. The, there were Greek philosophers who theorized it. The word atom is a Greek word. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there you go. Yeah. There were smarter people than Aristotle. There were many smarter people than Aristotle, <laughs> most of them around this table. So, Which is not aggrandizing. I'm not saying that we're smart. I'm saying Aristotle was really dumb. <laughs> but people still, people still quote him uh, to, like, reinforce... An intelligent, like an argument or something. You, you know what? He, baffles me. He was right about catharsis. I'll give him that. The the notion that uh, his whole theory that his theory of art was that the reason art is satisfying to an audience is because they vicariously experience emotion through the people on the stage. And I'm like, 
I think that's correct. I think that's part of it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a big part of it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it was also, the thing is, well, to what end? And it is, to me, the, the, the larger point is to gain a larger understanding of things outside yourself. Right. Which is, is essentially the same kind of idea. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So We're not disagreeing. Are we done with... <laughs> I don't know, you usually disagree hey. with me, but everything, so... Read it. All right, I got one. Okay. I found one. Okay. I fished it out of the hat. The, what is the name of this hat, by the way? Is it is this the... Lester. The hat's name is Lester. Lester. Do we even describe... Michael has just named the hat, and it is Lester. It's Lester. Lester so. the Unlikely, after the Super Nintendo game. Ah. That, uh... <laughs> <laughs> did we describe it, what we were doing in this section and what we're reading? No. We didn't, but we are drawing truths out of the Super Nintendo game Lester the Unlikely. And these truths, <laughs> for anybody who's actually curious, these truths are written by guests on the show. So one of these might be Michael's. Has any of yours been read yet? I, you know, I'm, I'm behind on listening to the podcast. <laughs> so I don't Everyone is. <laughs> Everyone is, except for the... 39 people who are <laughs> An author will remember that describing things is not necessarily the same as telling a story, but sometimes it is. That, that is a weirdly... To me, that says nothing at all. That is a weirdly equivocating law of semiotics. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of this time I saw this weather, like, it, it, when they tried to do teasers for the news, and the weather guy was like, is it going to be uh, really nice out tomorrow, or will it not? And I was like, well, that's, that's kind of like all it can be. It's one of those two things. So you were you didn't give any specifics, right. and this feels it feels the same way here. It's like, right. yeah, describing things can be a story, or it may not be a story. So, so I will... Try to be generous with the benefit of the doubt here and say that, like, this is a... I really want to think that most of your guests on this show are intelligent people. Sometimes <laughs> these laws of semiotics just leave me scratching my head and going, man, I dropped out of college. And, I, and, and I'm still looking at you and going, dude. <laughs> my, my generous interpretation is that it's dealing with the question of the difference between setting and story. Which it's probably not saying, but I think that this is more interesting well, than and saying yeah. it said nothing. Mm-hmm. But and that's, <laughs> a good, that's a good idea. Because you, you do see a lot of storytellers who are mm-hmm. not... Um, who, who do mistake just description for story. So they're like, if I, am, if I am just poetic enough in how I describe this cool idea, right. that will settle, that will be enough for a story. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. no. You need, <laughs> you need to then create some sort of plot out of this description. Yeah. And you can, I mean, there's there's certain times where somebody, where some really great, I can't think of anything right now, but <laughs> I know I have read stories where it is mostly description and it's mm-hmm. really good mm-hmm. and it can be enough. You're but thinking there's like a little... of the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just say it's mostly description <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <clears throat> 
but generally you when you find those ones that are really well written that are just that seem like a description there you you find in them buried uh these kind of themes and these mm-hmm. stories and these metaphors and you know what i'll, I'll dive out and say it's you the just whole, you do uh, a lot of diving on i do all i do is dive <laughs> i'm the aquaman of this podcast but <laughs> <laughs> The Aquaman of metaphors. <laughs> what? Wow. That was just layers and layers. It was one layer. Pretty much. <laughs> That's about all you can do. Oh. <laughs> but it is, it is the... You didn't, even, you didn't even fight back on that. I didn't. I, I acknowledge the reality of what you said. Oh. <laughs> well, it's not fun when they don't fight back. But it is, it is the, the James Joyce thing of there's, you know, there's... The definite body that says, uh, you know, James Joyce's pompous stupidity and anyone who pretends to like them is lying. And uh, and there's those of us who are like, you know what, I've read some of it and I actually did enjoy mm-hmm. a lot of what I read. And it, it's the the thing of a lot of it is just clever, artful language. But that can actually be fun sometimes. Well, that's what, that's what, <laughs> that's what poetry, well, poetry is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I, I like language, quite frankly. Yeah, I, I, I like good dig into it, pose, prose, you know, pose, pose yeah. whatever. It's getting late and tired. <laughs> <laughs> and and but, he str- he straddles that line mm-hmm. of doing the the telling a story and just doing like a weird, cool thing with language right, and just, the, just being a stylist. Yeah, yeah. Pro and the, can't you enjoy that sometimes Absolutely without you can like enjoy that sometimes but without it being some sort of academic lie that you're constricting? You know, I think <laughs> you made a good point though. Like like with poetry, poetry is mostly pro styling. I mean, there's not yeah. always it, it, it's more trying to evoke an emotion than trying to build um, attention or a story. Now, a lot of, in the best of poetry, it does both. I think mm. personally, but but. Even some very good poems necessarily don't evoke a lot, of, a ton of tension, but their their style and their use of language um, is what makes it work, if yeah. you will. So but the, the the ugly side of that is that, in particularly in the geek community, which some people around here belong to, what? <laughs> is the the uh, where you can find yourself in a position of lecturing other people. For being wrong for enjoying what they enjoy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah. the, but the notion is maybe someone enjoys James Joyce. Maybe someone enjoys. Right. You Return know, of the, the Jedi. Yeah. Or, Shut up. <sighs> but, <laughs> I enjoyed Return of the Jedi. But, but not Star Trek V. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh, your dog just untied my shoe. With <laughs> his teeth. Good boy. Good boy. Nice. <laughs> Let go of my shoelaces, Bruder. God. His name is Leonard McCoy from now on. <laughs> but the but it, but it is that we enter this weird sort of mental, mm-hmm. sort of gladiatorial realm where we have to prove that what the other person loves is wrong. That uh, I I do think it's unhealthy in the well, game we do world. It, I mean, you see this kind of stuff all the time where. <laughs> In one realm, uh, Bruder, God go damn my it, feet, Bruder. Um, <laughs> we're yelling at a dog you can't see. 
Um, Which is just as well because you're listening to this over the internet. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you see that a lot with um, just with general. Uh, okay, good. He's got a little toy. Yeah, I <laughs> I took care of it. <laughs> what were we talking about? I'm glad I you're totally listening got, to this. I totally got d- distracted. Um, lecturing geeks for about? being wrong no. about enjoying oh, things. Oh no! It, well, so it, we we forget that a lot of the things that we take as some of our deeper values. Uh, uh, in this case, I'm talking about uh, liberal leaning people. Um, we don't. <laughs> what? That's so funny. <laughs> that we don't. I love how you just let into that. With but. <laughs> There's this there's this idea that um, where we don't take uh, one concept uh, and, and apply it across the board. So, for example, we need to be incredibly um, tolerant of somebody's sexual preference, mm. and we're not going to question, "Well, that's stupid." Because you like what you like, <laughs> but and we'll be very vehement about that. But at the, that same person who's vehement about that will then go, "Wait a minute, you like uh, the Star, Star Trek, Trek Five, <laughs> and then and, and sit there and be <laughs> judgmental about it, and again and not apply that idea of you like what you like." And so this, this idea of how people are constantly falling into the very traps yeah. that they. Feel like I, I, other people fall into. I, I think it's important that all of our listeners are aware of the fact that Ben drew an equivalence between gender identity and liking Star Trek, Trek 5. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be. You know what? Maybe in my mind, I was drawing the equivalence of uh, straight. The most. The most. No, the keep way, going. No. But, <laughs> the the most. Uh, the least kinky form of sex could be the Star Trek V of sex. I will say a cat woman does slash Kirk across the face in Star Trek V. So when you're evaluating what you believe kinky to be, that uh, is something Any sex is better than Star Trek (laughs) V. I'm just going to put that out there to the listeners. But you know, but my point yeah, is, you, you know what? I'll, I'll dive onto this since this is. Oh, you're diving in. Yeah, I'm doing Aquaman. Dive! I'm Aquamaning. Are you Aquamaning on the Star Trek? Five now, <laughs> I am. On the Star Trek Five, because this is apparently what this podcast is about now, and we all just have to deal with that reality. <laughs> By the way, listeners, Philip loves the movie Star Trek Five. That's why I, I always bring it up around him. The thing is. It's not a joke. I actually do enjoy the movie. <laughs> but here's the thing, because uh, I think this is significant. I watched all the Star Trek movies before I had any sense of or communication with geek culture. Mm-hmm. So the notion that there was some sort of group response to how we were supposed to feel about these movies was bizarre to me. I saw Star Trek V and thought it was a fun, goofy movie. Mm-hmm. I was w- sort of stunned when I entered geek culture and realized that it was this deeply loathed <coughs> thing. It is the pariah <laughs> of the Star Trek movies in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. So. 
But well, I think I think the greater point though is that is that like you talk about letting people like what they like. You know, I have opinions about Star Trek Five, but you like it. And that's great. <laughs> and that's fine. And I have found myself I have no problem with anyone hating it. They right. should hate it. Right. I have found myself <laughs> in the unenviable position of defending, you know, the Twilight books. Yeah. I, Do I, it, man. I, 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 well, I, just, I I have only read the first one, and 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 they are not to my taste. Right. We'll just put it like that. But if but if it gets people reading, if people enjoy it, if it brings mm. them joy, if it gets them on to maybe better things as well, yeah. then power to you. Like what you like, for Christ's sake. Yeah. You know? But there there is this thing specifically in geek culture mm. where we get weirdly militant about it. The of the. Which is I actually surprised. Well, not, I keep bringing things back to politics. Which I don't know why I do that. It surprises me why lip, uh, geek culture is, generally speaking, fairly liberal culture. But that militant that agree but, with that. But yeah, that I would agree. Militant, it's iffy, but I generally agree with I, that. I, I think so, it is liberal leaning with a fair amount of libertarians in it. Yeah, and, but that militant attitude re- it resembles to me so much uh, a more conservative approach to things like that conservative mm-hmm. kind of because oh. because what because conservatives are geeks about like things like guns but it's still geekiness oh but i would i would absolutely say that uh, liberals absolutely get militant in in a really similar way yeah and when, when that and every time that happens that, i'm like oh that liberal just that, became a conservative which, uh, yes which is why we're <laughs> friends because we also both recognize it when it happens yeah uh, Yes. And now Bruder is destroying something. <laughs> dog bed. Batman dog bed. <laughs> so you just cringed at something. What did I cringe at? I, I, I don't want to create a false equivalence no. here yeah. with no. the liberal conservative yeah. thing because they're doing very different things and have very different hang-ups. And, uh, but I do think that yeah, liberals have weird obsessive hangups that I do think are glossed over. But and what, <laughs> in which I, in which I feel are re- resemble conservative. Yeah, opinions. <laughs> I, I wonder too if a lot of this goes back to hierarchy building. You know. Yeah. You know. I mean, hmm. at our core, you know, the, the North African plains ape that we are, we believe in hierarchies, mm-hmm. and. And consensus, and you know, if, so if, if if I like this thing and it makes me feel better about myself because you like this other thing, you know, if I like if I like James Joyce and you like Twilight, obviously I am better than you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and like you said, that just and geek them for whatever reason, and possibly because many people feel as young geeks that they are trod upon in the in the Pot boiler system that is the American high school secondary system, um, mm-hmm. they get out and they're trying to find their own power. Um, and so they, they draw consensuses about what is good and what is not. And, and we'll defend that to the death, mm-hmm. you know, almost, except most of them are not fine. Is it as simple as the idea of the people who are bullied? try to assume that position and bully others or is that is too simplistic that. I, I think, think there is some of that yeah. i think it's a lot of it is um 
if if you feel bullied in your life, mm-hmm. then um, <clears throat> oh, I gotta be careful here. Because it's why every Holocaust victim ultimately tries to become a Nazi, right? That's the... I'm ironically mocking the extreme of this position, to be clear to everyone listening. Yeah, to you better be clear. Because... <laughs> <laughs> <Negative> 14. <laughs> you not learned anything from this podcast. Oh, God. But I'm saying it's a, to say that being bullied means you become a bully has troubling... Yeah, it really does. If you accept that notion, but that's the slippery slope fallacy where you can, um, where you can take any any idea to the extreme. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, you can see a lot of people who are who become (coughs) bullies who were because they were bullied. It's Magneto. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. So your point was was Magneto, (laughs) Um, and you can totally. But someone who's been horribly abused has a tendency to try to abuse others. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah, is that a this, horribly controversial thing for me I to say? I don't think that's a horribly <laughs> controversial thing. I mean, I'm, I, I'm married to a psychotherapist, and she yeah. will tell you that the cycle of abuse is a real thing in yeah. families, you know, mm. because it's what you were modeled. Yeah. And so you, you grow up thinking it's normal. Mm. Yeah, and, you, and if, if you yourself feel bullied then you don't it's harder for you to think of yourself as a bully so you will you will then bully other people in the name of defending your own and that uh, is one of the things in the geek community when you call people out on that and say that they they will get really super upset with you yeah Mm -hmm. well that's why (laughs) even just what i said is probably 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 totally gonna lose me with the presidency when i try to (laughs) because the presidency is what we're all reaching for (laughs) (laughs) But, but yeah, I, yeah, that's I, I. How fucked up is it that we have to tiptoe this much around the very idea that being hurt can lead people to hurt others? Why is that such a controversial idea? Because you're, but because, because that we have to. Because <laughs> it's, it's very controversial to say that a victim can victimize. Yes, yes, that's a controversial that's a thing. Very good point. Um, it is controversial to say that, even though it is true. Yeah. You know, because because then you, <coughs> one of the reasons that we find ourselves tiptoeing around that is then you get into that murky area of victim blaming. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. yes. Exactly. Which no one wants which to do. Which no one wants to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that you do, it, it is, like I said, it, it's, it is a thing. Mm. And it's an unfortunate thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, I mean... The kid who was abused by his father grows up pulling wings off flies and murdering yeah. dogs, and his kid then, you know, eats somebody. And it's it's so... I don't know... It's kind of extreme, but, you know... No, I, I don't know why it is so endemic to geek culture, but it clearly is. We have all observed it. Well, I will say this. Yeah, I, when I do, like, <coughs> conversions or I do um, anything else where there's a lot of... where there's a tight geek culture, I feel... I can very often feel like I've been returned to high school when I mm. felt excluded. And it's like yeah. this this mm. culture that has basically <coughs> built up in response to being excluded mm-hmm. is now doing the excluding. It, it can be one of the most exclusive yeah. cultures there is. And, and it is so hierarchy-focused. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. in a bizarre way that uh, of the which character I happen to be playing at the last comedy sketch yeah. affects how people address me as if that meant anything, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and it's, you're just building, you're building the same exact um, societies that promote, yeah. that promoted the uh, bullying and, and victimization. That was the thing that created that society in the first place. And, and- I don't know why, but geeks seem to have so little introspection about this. I know there are exceptions. There are people who try to shine a flashlight on this, but uh, for the most part, but you can see to... just how much we're tiptoeing. That just just starting yeah, to do right? that, you get shut down really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's messed up. That's my contribution. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can see, I can see it from both sides. It's not like it's a, it's a black and white. No, and I don't mean to say that. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to in any way implicate uh, anyone who is upset. Yeah. By the, the. Oh hell! I'll dive on it. The, oh, the, diving again! Uh, I have, look at me diving. <laughs> uh, the. <laughs> It, it, no, this is a shit dive, man. This is, it is a was, shit that was dive. A, that was oh. a belly flop dive. I know, I belly flopped onto I, the non-existent metaphorical Aquaman <laughs> belly flopping, come on. This Aquaman does not have a harpoon for a hand. <laughs> Honestly, I, I just don't know what to make for it of it. The... Well, I'll give you... Uh, I mean... Here's one other example, and okay. I don't know why. I'm just digging my hole deeper here. Do but it. let's just take uh, the Heineken commercial that just came out. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, when people listen to this, this was now like three months ago, <laughs> um, where it seemed like when I watched it, it did a fairly good job at pointing out the um, the, the the benefits of bridge building with people mm-hmm. who disagree with you people yes. who may even hate you yeah now so uh, for those who are not familiar with the ad it had people <clears throat> from two different very extreme uh perspectives um one side you could you could uh you can make the argument are essentially the abusers mm-hmm. um transphobic people and that right. could, and then um and then somebody <laughs> from the other side and then they would kind of get come together and sort of talk about other things without knowing and then mm. they and then they would have a conversation over a beer, which was the Heineken. So it was mm. Italian Heineken, and of course, there's always there's always a little bit of shallowness to any of this when it's a corporate ad. But the idea was, <laughs> the idea was, it it does indeed help to just talk to somebody who is different than you. And it was helping the, the person who was helping was the hateful person. The yeah. hateful person became less hateful. By talking to this, yeah, because you've humanized this person yes. that that I hate. You've you've, you've broken the othering. Yeah. At this point. So so, so but, this is a thing when uh, when I was teaching uh, physical comedy that uh, like one of the exercises we do is people would walk around a room and you'd say walk like this or walk like this and uh, and one of them would be walk like an old person mm-hmm. and everyone would immediately become you know, crippled. Because that's what... And then you'd say, walk like your grandmother. 
and they would adopt a very specific physical like you know but the yeah. the, the notion that they, when it's this broad yeah unclear notion as opposed to this very specific human thing to imitate mm-hmm. that uh i mean i get it i think i get what you're saying yeah, yeah. you know that's exactly it it's yeah. that humanizing it's the humanizing aspect of mm. it essentially puts a little bit of the flame out yeah. there's a fire going on and right. just just a little bit of exposure to the thing that these people are freaked out about mm. dim it, it puts the fire out a little bit so which in my opinion is a good thing but then, so this ad came out, and the people on Facebook mm. posted, hey, look at this good ad. And then, inevitably, two days later, there was the backlash. Yeah. And I knew this was going to happen. Mm. I saw the ad, like, oh, here, where's the backlash? You're mm-hmm. a psychic. I know. I am a psychic. <laughs> I'm a psychic because I've been through this too many times <laughs> on Facebook. And I knew this was going to happen, which was pe- people, and then it's going to be, it's on it's on the liberal mm. side again. And I, I, I get more, I get, I'm more sensitive to... The liberal side because I am a liberal, so I'm I'm, I'm amongst those people. So no, I, I, always, I, 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 but yeah. the but I was like, okay, the, they're going to be angry hmm. at the very idea that this ad suggested that <clears throat> these people should be talking to what these liberals think are monsters. monsters. Mm-hmm. These are monsters, and these are evil people. They should not be reached out to. Yeah. It is absolutely inappropriate to expect somebody. Yeah. Because Ooh. because anyone who voted for Trump is an inscrutable hate monster. This is <laughs> that's that that is it. That's yeah. that's not well, it's not a joke. That's the thing. These are no, so I, essentially. I, I said it as a joke and as truth. truth. Yeah. Because as a comedian, I think you recognize that both true can exist. True. <laughs> true. But I think a lot of very extreme liberals they have a hard time recognizing comedy. So anyway. Um, <laughs> So let me continue to dig my hole further. What? <laughs> uh, you're diving, you're digging. Uh, I can keep digging further. Um, so, but it, there was a, the article that came out in Medium where the, the, the writer was arguing that this is a dangerous approach because what you're expecting is this, these people who are victims mm-hmm. to, to meet up with their victimizers. And that is expecting too much of them. And it, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you're right. There's a certain aspect where the victim has to approach the victimizer who is not going to be willing to do it. Mm-hmm. But the question remains, do you want to put this fire out or do you want it to, to keep burning? And, yeah. and, and now it goes back to the thing I was talking about earlier where in one aspect you're doing something really liberal and then you take that same idea and it's almost a conservative aspect. And so <coughs> what, they're, what they're saying is in this case – Diplomacy is not the answer. The answer is war. But if you go back just a little bit ago, you look at the the Iran thing where where liberals <coughs> were making fun of Republicans. Republicans were going, we should not be having diplomacy with Iran to yeah. try to get that nuclear deal. That is ridiculous. Uh, and the liberals are like, oh, what? The, the Republicans just want war? They're not going to talk? To these yeah. people on the Republicans saying, well, these are our enemies and we shouldn't be talking to them. Yeah. But now these very same liberals who are like, we should have been talking to Iran. That was obvious. Are now saying, we, what are you going to, we're going to talk to our enemy? So again, it's that inconsistency where this yeah. one liberal idea now has become, now they've become conservatives. That is, to me, the well, saying we shouldn't talk is a conservative opinion. It's the Mel Burks 
thing of uh, tragedy is me cutting my finger. Comedy is you falling down a manhole and killing yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, last <laughs> law oh. of semiotics. We're doing it. Oh, wow. An author may not hide behind technobabble to conceal that they have no understanding of the scientific principles they are trying to present or subvert. Oh, yeah. Don't just say shit to pretend you don't know what you're talking about. What? Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I understand. Was so it's what, what I just it, said it, it, more confusing than what I just read? Oh <laughs> well, I mean, you can see, you can make the argument that a lot of episodes of Star Trek end with them going, "Well, it was because of the bam, 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 bam. That's how we got out of this situation. Right. You see that a lot, yeah. right? You, you, I, I saw an interview with um, with Ronald Moore, and he said in the scripts they would sometimes just write the word tech, tech, mm -hmm. tech, tech, and then they'd figure out how to tech babble it later. Right. So I, I get what this this person is going for. Um, I'm trying to decide how I want to address this. I do. <laughs> I do think that you know what if you could do techno battle, but it sh it definitely ought to be rooted in, in actual science. in real science. Yeah, yes, yeah. and you can maybe cheat a little bit there, but if it's not rooted in actual science, then I totally agree with this rule. I have said it before, and I'll say it again. Stargate was great at this <laughs> in terms of they would introduce a scientific concept, Chekhov's gun it, mm -hmm. and by the end of every episode, I could at least see how they came to that conclusion. Star Trek rarely did this. <laughs> <laughs> no, they would just kind of wave at the concept and go on. It sort um, of surprises me that this, because Star Trek is such a geeky yeah. thing, that this is not more of an issue among geeks. That it that it did such a fairly in poor job at really scientifically explaining things. Yeah. yeah um, well, Star Trek was always fucking... Oh, we have talked about this so much, but Star Trek was always Gulliver's Travels. It was always uh, trying to do these broad, grand metaphors and did not care about the underlying science no. behind what they were doing. You know? No, well, Heisenberg, yeah. that was some tachyons through the deflector dish, and then we'll yeah, go yeah, on to yeah. the next thing. Right. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think I agree, though, with, with Ben on this, is that your underlying science should be at least quasi-science, at least plausible, mm -hmm. e even if it's fantastical. Yeah. Um, but I also think don't get so caught up in that. If, if, if you're like, you know, I'm a liberal arts major, don't really have the background, then just admit the fact that you were writing science fantasy Yeah. and go on with life. Mm -hmm. Admit to the fact that you, were, that you were writing Star Wars, which is science fantasy mm -hmm. space opera. And I'm okay with, with science that. fantasy. Exactly. But, I'm okay uh, with that. Sure, uh, physics as we understand them, FTL travel is impossible. I don't care. No. I, I will write science fantasy if that's what makes it work for me no. so that I can have grand sweeping, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. But it's all it's all Chekhov's gun stuff of as long as this concept is introduced and later exploited. Mm -hmm. So it makes dramatic sense. It's really right. not that hard to do that yeah. either. It's just 
for any for people who are listening, they can't see that uh, Bruder <laughs> is in the kitchen, very comically hopping up and down, inches away from he a plate a, of chicken wings. He has a crazy vertical. Just <laughs> and his ears are flopping, and his and he's inches away from these things that will. Chicken wings are bad, like poisonous for dogs. I right? think we're agreed. This is a good point for us. <laughs> <laughs> that way we start talking about what brooders doing in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> Each story holds a thousand seeds, a proverbial pomegranate, a jewel of possibilities, a not so silent planet, a not so silent planet. A not-so-silent planet